Good morning. It's good to be back. It's good to be home. That's the, uh, yeah, some allergies, but, you know, it's September. It's fine. Um, I, uh, this summer, I just, I just want to say quickly, this summer was a, a serious gift to me and to my family. Uh, we had something like 80-plus days of unbroken time together. Would you say that's about right? Uh, I've never had anything like that, and I know uh, that we, we did not take it for granted in any way, shape, or form either, to just be able to spend time with one, one another, and oftentimes throughout my career, I've had two jobs and three jobs at times, and then planting this church, I've been out of the house at six o'clock in the morning and out late in the evenings, and, and this last summer was just an opportunity to explore the beauty of creation and the beauty of North Idaho, and and then just to be, be together and to focus on one another, read a bunch of books, which is super life-giving to me, and just was able to, like, to just rest. So I'm coming back, feeling rested, ready to, uh, ready to get going this morning. We're in uh, the middle of Matthew's Gospel. There's some Bibles around the room. Grab one of those if you would, or if you brought your Bible, uh, I hope you did. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 17. Use the table of contents if you need to use the table of contents. Zero uh, shame in that. We want you to get to, know, uh, get to know the scriptures. Matthew is the first book of your New Testament. This is one of the gospels that testify to the life and the reality of Jesus. And a central theme in Matthew's gospel is the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of this king, Jesus's authority. And so here, kind of picking up halfway through, about halfway through Matthew's gospel, uh, these disciples, he's going to kind of hand select a few, uh, three disciples out from among the 12 that are very close to him, and they're going to get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, and it's going to blow their mind. They're going to get a fresh revelation of Jesus's majesty and of who he is. And what every person here needs, what each one of us needs, every person in the world, not just here, but out there in the world, what we need desperately is a fresh revelation of the majesty of Jesus Christ. This word majesty is not a word that we use a lot, but it means dignity, it means impressiveness, it means greatness. Everyone, everywhere needs, like we need to behold the glory of Jesus. To behold means to have a fresh and an accurate view, to have an accurate hold on who Jesus is, to have him in your view. So when we say, when any follower of Jesus says that Jesus is God and that God is glorious, we mean what we mean by that is that Jesus is exceedingly worthy and that Jesus is exceedingly admirable. Nothing else compares to the power and the splendor of Jesus of Nazareth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Compared to him, the latest iPhone is a brick. The latest Ford GT MX, MK4, sorry Gideon, is a tin can. The most advanced aircraft carrier is a rubber ducky. The most beautiful city is an infested slum. His majesty is far beyond anything that we have ever comprehended, that any human being has ever comprehended. Whenever you see the record of, of 
God's involvement in his world through the scriptures, whenever humans encounter the living God, we don't know what to do. Maybe you've had an experience with him where his presence and you had a sense of his nearness and a sense of his reality and it overwhelmed you. Oftentimes, especially in the scriptures, but in our own experiences, we, we fall to the ground. We cover our eyes. We shield our mouths. The power of God overwhelms. And rightly so, though we're created in God's image, we're not God. That is for him alone. He is entirely in his own class. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read Matthew chapter 17. It's called the transfiguration of Jesus. And I'm just going to read through this passage of scripture and then we're going to pray. And then I just want you to see three things. There are a lot more than three things to see, but I think that this text wants us to see three things. Three things are that the majesty of Jesus is reality that every single one of us underestimates his majesty. And then the third thing is a bit of a mouthful, but the whole Christian life is lived out through our surrender to him. And what that looks like practically for us is that we listen to his voice and we obey his will. And I'll give us some practical input on just how we can tune our ears, tune our hearts, tune our minds to listen to hear the voice of Jesus who is alive. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, all right, that clues us into something right away. After six days, there's something that had come before. Jesus has been doing all kinds of pretty intense ministry. He's feeding thousands of people. He's healing people. He is rebuking demons. People, crowds are following him. The Pharisees are these religious rulers in the day. They're opposing him. He's under intense, intense pressure. Not just from the natural side of things, but also from the supernatural side of things. From the, 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 the region of darkness, from Satan and demons and, and this whole realm of darkness. After six days, Jesus had just spoken to his disciples. Peter tries to give Jesus some counsel, tries to advise him, hey, hey, you don't need to go to the cross. And, and, and Jesus actually says to Peter, hey, Satan, like, you don't know what you're doing. You're opposing me. Get behind me. You don't have the things of God in view. You actually have the things of man in your view. This is opposed to who I am and what I'm about and the purpose for which I have come. And then he says to his disciples, if anybody is going to come after me, anybody wants to be my disciple and follow me, they're going to have to de deny themselves. They're going to have to take up their cross. They're going to have to follow me. And it's not going to be easy, but I will be present and I will be with you. And now after that, after six days, apparently Jesus needed a week off. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers. So these are kind of the three foremost of these disciples, kind of Jesus' inner circle. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Anytime you see high mountain in your Bibles, it's signifying something to you. Mountains are places where Moses would go in the Old Testament to receive the law from God. Uh, Elijah would be on the mountain battling these prophets of Baal, this kind of cult and pagan cult in their day. Um, Abraham would take his son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, but God would redeem Isaac and would provide a sacrifice in his place. Jesus would teach 
in the New Testament from the Mount of Beatitudes. One of his favorite places to go and pray was the Mount of Olives. Mountains are like this liminal space. That, that word means thin. It's like this thin space between God and men where people will go to seek God. So it's all over the scriptures. Whenever you see that, just tune in. They're up in this liminal, thin space by themselves. And Jesus, something incredible happens to him. He was transfigured or changed before them. And his face, it shines or shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Is that hard for you to imagine that happening to a human being right now as we read the text of Scripture? There are some really uh, strange and hard-to-believe things in your Bible. We can all admit that and exhale. God is the God of the natural, and he is also the God of the supernatural. And behold, they're not alone. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah. These are Old Testament prophets talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. Like, you can appreciate this is good. This is, this is amazing. I'm, his mind is being blown a bit here. And so he rushes to action, which is what Peter does and what some of us do. And he says, if you wish, I'll make three tents here, or shelters, temporary shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, Cloud is representative of God's presence all throughout the New Testament. And this voice from the cloud, so it gets bigger and better. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son or my chosen one with whom I am well pleased. Listen. Listen to him. When the disciples hear this, like any of us would, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came To these disciples, he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, I've got some instructions for you. Tell nobody this vision until the Son of Man, that was his favorite phrase and identifier of himself in Matthew's gospel, till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He's been previewing for them that, that he is going to suffer. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. This is this Old Testament prophecy that the the spirit that was on Elijah empowering his life and ministry would be put on another person who would come to prepare the way of the Lord before he came. We'll get into that in a little bit. Jesus says in verse 12, I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they, these scribes and religious rulers, they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then these disciples, they have their eyes opened in this moment. They understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Father, we... We come to you with your word open. We come to you to see the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ who reigns with you at your right hand on high. This is not a figment of our imaginations, but the reality. And we pray in the name of the Holy Spirit as well, who comes to us, who you've given to us to fill us and to lead us continually to Jesus. And so with our Bibles open in our laps, we ask that you would would help us to understand And in the places that are hard to understand, we ask you that you would help us to believe, that you would fill us with faith in you. 
And we pray this in the name of our King and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So kind of a big idea that's, that's, um, that's kind of governing how I'm thinking about this is, is this. Jesus is majestic, and he's powerful, and he is true, and true life is found in him. True life, abundant life. Are you looking for abundant life? Are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for purpose? You want your life to count, to matter. True life is found in Jesus Christ, and it's found listening to him and through following him or obeying him. This will lead to your best future. Your circumstances might be sketchy and touch and go, but the simple fact that even as we suffer, which some of us do, when we know that the, that the Lord, the God of all creation, is by our side, it strengthens us and puts steel on our spine to be able to endure and to be able to minister even to other people and not turn inward so deeply on ourselves. Here's my first point this morning, and I, the text makes this point. The majesty of Jesus is reality. Have you ever thought about that? that the, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is majestic? Beautiful. Dignified. Powerful beyond comprehension. These disciples on top of this mountain, Peter, James, and John, they've been walking with him. They've been living with him. They know what his breath smells like in the morning after a long night and fish for dinner. But their understanding of him is about to catch up with who he really is. He is fully human, and he is fully God. And so they're in for this fresh encounter with God, but they don't know it yet. They're just kind of along for the ride. Their, uh, their understanding of who he is is about to catch up with who he really is. This last week, I was FaceTiming with a buddy, and we were talking through some stuff, and I was trying to follow him, but the Wi-Fi in our house on the front porch was not doing its work. And so his face on the screen and his voice were delayed by about three seconds. You know what this feels like. And everything in my brain is trying to follow him and glitching. And I, I'm like, dude, I can't do this. We have to disconnect and reconnect. And it wasn't until his voice and his face matched up that I could begin to follow him. And it's sort of like this for these disciples. They're, they're with Jesus, but they're about to catch up more accurately to who he is. They know that he's the special human being doing incredible things. He is. He was. They believe that he is this Messiah. He's just explicitly told them that he is Messiah. And Peter has confessed that Jesus is this Christ that all of Israel was waiting for. And he is. And he was. But once on top of that mountain, they are going to catch a glimpse of his fullness. Colossians chapter 1, we read in the call to worship this morning, in him, in Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I'm tempted to think that this experience on this mountaintop was a foreshadowing. But in reality, what this was, was a revealing. It was a revealing of who Jesus is. You know that moment when you're, you're watching a show or something and there's a curtain obscuring the surprise behind it and the moment when that curtain drops and what is behind it, the surprise is revealed. Jesus has been this glorious the entire time, but he has veiled his majesty with his humanity. And Matthew tells us in this account in chapter 17 that Jesus was transfigured before them. This word transfigured is the word meta. Uh, metano, uh, metamorpho, rather, which means transformed or changed. 
It's like Jesus goes from one thing to another thing in front of their eyes and their understanding of who he is expands. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus' face radiates light. We have words for this. When a woman is pregnant, we say she is what? Glowing. We see a person's countenance. But this is actually in a different category. His face from the inside is radiating light. There are lots of other instances in Scripture. Revelation chapter 1 actually will talk about Jesus as John has an encounter with Jesus. And he will say again that his face shone like the sun. Daniel chapter 7 will say that his face shone like the sun. And they're seeing that from the inside Jesus is radiating light. Moses in the Old Testament, he goes up on Mount Sinai and he encounters Yahweh And Yahweh's brilliance and glory kind of infuses itself into his flesh. And he comes back down off of this mountain and his face is like literally glowing. And Israel, they're freaked out by it. They don't know what to do about it. And they tell him, hey, you got to put something over that. Like you got to veil yourself. Buddy of mine called it the Moglo. He's like freaking him out, right? But what Moses is doing is a bit what the moon does to the sun. He's reflecting the glory of The moon reflects the glory of the sun, but actually with Jesus in this text, it's saying that the light is coming out of him. It's radiating out of him. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5, Jesus himself would say that I'm the light of the world. John 8, John 1 would say that in him was life, and the life in him was the light of men, and this light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. This is not a foreshadowing. This is a revealing of who Jesus is. It's a revealing of who he's been. It's a revealing of who he is. It's a revealing of what he will be. The majesty of Jesus' reality. And Peter, James, and John, though they know him super well, they're getting a fresh revelation of him. We need, though we know him well too, we need a fresh revelation of who Jesus is, a fresh understanding of his dignity and his power and his splendor. This text tells us that not only his face shines like the sun, but even his clothing is white. It's like light. It's like unbleachably white and clean. Anybody who is responsible for the laundry, you know what this would be like. It's unbleachably white and clean. This this image in the scriptures, when somebody's clothing shines, it's speaking of, it's regularly describing encounters with heavenly beings, with angels. So Jesus is divine. And he's talking with a few guys who everybody in Israel knew of and looked up to as these prophets. Moses is one of them and Elijah is the other. Moses wrote the first five books of our Bibles, of the Old Testament. Moses was famous uh, among Israel because God gave him the law, specifically the Ten Commandments and more. This all came through Moses. Moses would intercede before the people. He would be a God-appointed mediator between God and the people of Israel. He was regularly frustrated by the people of Israel. He was rejected by the people of Israel. He regularly suffered at the hands of the people of Israel who grumbled and complained consistently, and he had his own shortcomings too. Yet Moses interceded for the people And if Israel has a hall of fame, Moses is top three, easy, top three. Elijah 
uh, is this famous fiery prophet who also was rejected by Israel, who lived later. He's this fiery guy. He's a bit weird. John the Baptist and he are paralleled in the scriptures. He's like wearing a coat of camel's hair with a belt around his uh, his waist, like a leather belt. He eats the insects of this desert and arid land. Uh, he was uh, pro- he was proclaiming um, repentance to the people of Israel. What Elijah was doing and also what John the Baptist were doing in, was doing in his day is that they were, they were calling the people of Israel to repent. They were calling the people of Israel to come back to Yahweh and to stop worshiping the other gods of these surrounding nations. Bring your heart back to God. Bring your heart back to his law. But Elijah was run out of town. Uh, there was a, an evil king named uh, Ahab who, just, uh, who, who opposed him relentlessly. And Moses or Elijah was apparently famous for not dying. Second Kings 2 says the Lord took him up to heaven in a whirlwind. Some of this stuff is, it requires faith to believe. If Moses is top three Israel Hall of Fame, Elijah is top five Israel Hall of Fame. These are in the consciousness of the Jewish people And both of these people, specifically Moses and Elijah, are connected to this Messiah who was prophesied. Through them and through other prophets in the Old Testament, they are specifically connected to this Messiah. Some commentators think that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, which means that this Messiah is the sum of the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament is pointing to this coming Messiah. I won't belabor you too much, but uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, Moses is speaking, the Lord is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. He's giving them some direction. And he says this, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. So he will be from the nation of Israel. And then listen to this, it is to him you shall listen. This prophet, it is to him you shall listen. Elijah in Malachi, that's the last book of your Old Testament, there's this prophecy around Elijah, and it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That was saying that this Elijah character is going to repeat in the day of the Messiah. And then Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 17 will say, I'm telling you, this Elijah has come. This Elijah is John the Baptist. So these disciples, they see Jesus talking with these two Hall of Famers, with Moses and with Elijah. And Luke's gospel, there are parallels in Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all three of these have an account of the transfiguration. And Luke's gospel tells us that uh, they were talking to Jesus about his departure, about the word for that is exodus, about his exodus that he would, quote, accomplish in Jerusalem. So Elijah and Moses are on this mountain encouraging Jesus. They were talking about his crucifixion, and they're trying to strengthen him because we see in the life of Jesus that he was like, Lord, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. But if it's possible, take this cup of your wrath from me. I don't want to endure this. But then in the garden before his crucifixion, we see, Jesus, he's like, okay, I'm going. I'm going. Jesus was about to suffer at the cross, not to deliver people from Egypt like Moses did, but actually to deliver humanity from a much more sinister enemy, Satan, sin, and death. 
He's talking with these men, Moses and Elijah, and they're encouraging him. There's a special kind of encouragement that you and I get from someone who has suffered like we have. Both Moses and Elijah were rejected. Both Moses and Elijah, they suffered at the hands of their people, and yet they endured, and they're there encouraging Jesus. And so I want to just say, there are many people in this room, you have, you have suffered through some significant things. You have particular encouragement to give to the people around you out of the things that you have experienced. Have you suffered? Are you ministering or seeking opportunity or seeking a way or an invitation to be able to uh, strengthen the people around you who have suffered or who are suffering like you did suffer? Your opportunity, my opportunity in this is to take them, to lead them to Jesus. How can we help lead these people to faith in Christ? My first point was that the text's first point is that Jesus is majestic and his majesty is reality. My second point is this, that everyone, all of us, underestimates Jesus and his majesty. Peter goes, hey, it's really, really good to be here. If you want Jesus, I'm going to help you. I want to help us hang out a little bit longer. I'm going to make a couple of tents. We'll set the black stone up over here. We're going to get this place all dialed in and we can just hang out. You got to love, like, you got to love Peter's enthusiasm. He gets a really bad rap, and rightfully, for this, like, ready, shoot, aim posture. It's pretty typical. Some of us are like that. Some of us are ready, shoot, aim people. The people who live with you or near you or your roommates, or your ch- children or your spouses can tell you and help clue you in too if you're a ready, shoot, aim person. It's not good. Uh, we really should walk that back and seek to grow in wisdom and in patience, pursue humility. But yet, Mark's gospel uh, here, a parallel to Matthew chapter 17, Mark's gospel says that Peter didn't know what to say. So he started talking anyways. Some of us are these people. Some of us know these people. Again, if you don't know what to say, don't. This is just life advice. In our relationship with the Lord, in our relationship with people, if you don't know what to say, when words elude you, just say, I don't have words. I don't know what to say. Then just be present, especially with sufferers, especially with those who are suffering. Uh, Proverbs uh, 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I think Abraham Lincoln took this and he said it's better to, uh, to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Thank God for Peter, though, because Peter's passion and Peter's immaturity actually represent so many of us. If you're all gas and no break, then there's a place in the kingdom of God for you. God bears with you. He corrects you. He comes to you with correction. He comes to you training you, but he bears with us if we're all gas and no break. Peter is learning here too. We see this. If you're a slow learner, but a learner no less, like take heart. Peter's a big encouragement. Peter starts into Jesus with, if you wish. So this is sort of like saying, not your will, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus. So far, so good, but Peter keeps talking. I'm going to make those tents. We can camp on the mountain for a while. And what we begin to see is that Peter's priority and God's priority are at odds. 
still. We just saw that in the passage previously at the end of chapter 16 where he's like, Peter, where he's like, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus corrects him firmly, calls him Satan, says, get behind me. You got the things of man in your view, not the things of God in your view. Peter wants to mark the occasion. Peter wants to hang out. Peter wants to stay a while. But that's sub what God's priority is for them. God wants Peter to surrender himself and James and John and all of his followers throughout eternity to surrender himself or ourselves fully to Jesus' direction. We've got all kinds of ideas about what God should do in this situation or that. All of us do. All of us come with this. We've got all, it shouldn't be like this, God. It should be like this. They shouldn't be like this. They should be doing this. But how many of us seek the counsel of the Lord before we attempt to offer him ours? I think that's a test. I think that's a question. So many of us seek to become God's counselor before we seek him for his counsel. This impulse uh, to give God counsel is alive and active in me. And it's not humility. It's its opposite. It's pride. Look at verse 5. Um, Speaking of pride, Peter's still speaking. (laughs) And then the text tells us that a voice comes out of the cloud. Like, hey! A bright cloud, more light, the presence of God is there. It overshadows them, and a voice from this cloud says, this is my beloved son. The other, um, Mark and Luke, they say, this is my chosen one with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, shut your mouth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this transfiguration. They record these words of God the Father spoken over Jesus. What God is doing again here is he's validating and publicly endorsing Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God. He's publicly affirming Jesus. He's publicly validating him. He's publicly declaring that he is pleased with him. Listen to him. It's the same he said over Jesus at his baptism. And I want to ask parents, is this your practice? To validate and to affirm your kids. To let them know that you are pleased with them. To let them know that they are secure in your love. Even the grown ones. Even the ones that are across the country or across town. Do you have an opportunity to validate and to affirm your pleasure in your loved ones? And if you don't have kids, there's opportunity for you to do this with your loved ones, with your best friends, with your parents, with your siblings. You cannot underestimate the need for a father or a mother's validation. We know this. We feel when somebody speaks words of validation over us. Oftentimes, we try to push it away because we don't believe that we're worthy. We kind of, we bypass it. Yeah, 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 thanks. Let's move on, I'm uncomfortable. But no one in this room is in danger of being over-encouraged with the truth of how you are loved. None of us. None of us. This Father's endorsement is the same of Jesus is the same as when Jesus was baptized, except for this last part where he says, listen to him. When the disciples hear this, they fall on their faces and they're terrified. On your face in humility is the best 
way and the best place to hear the voice of the Lord. To get low. To learn to confess your sin. To learn to see the ways that we fall short of God and his glory and his standards for us. To learn to see the way that we hurt the people around us. And then to confess our need for help. To confess our need for God's grace. To confess our need for his intervention. That, those moments when I see my sin and I, and, I, and I stop bottling it, but I confess it to him and to the people that I've heard and I ask him for grace and for forgiveness and I ask people for their forgiveness. Those are the moments in my life when his voice tends to get really loud in my soul. It tends to really turn up within me. Pride refuses repentance. Humility embraces it. To listen to God is to surrender. To surrender to God is to be made ready for obedience. It is so easy to avoid your own sin by pointing out other people's. Does anybody else resonate with this? It's so easy for us to avoid our own fallenness by just pointing out the flaws of other people, the sin of other people. That too is pride. Here's my third point. Uh, The whole Christian life is lived out through surrender to Jesus, through listening to his voice and through obeying Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. We, each of us, were bought with the precious, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who confessed our sin and are children of the kingdom, we were bought with a price. We're not our own. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Last week's text in Matthew chapter 16 is so rich. Listen to Jesus here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will we, any of us, give in return for our soul? They're on this mountain. Peter, James, and John get this fresh revelation of Jesus' majesty. They did not know what they were in for. But now they're hearing the Father's voice again. They were with Jesus in his baptism. Now they're with him on this mountain. And the Father says, he's my beloved. He's my chosen. Tune your ears to him. Tune your minds to him. Listen to him. Surrender fully to him. And what I love in this text is we see that they do. We see it right away as they start coming down the mountain from this extraordinary experience. They're coming back into the ordinary and Jesus commands them something. He starts giving issues, giving orders right, right out of the gates. He's like, hey, I know this was profound, but don't say a word to anybody about it. Keep it inside. And they don't. Text tells us that they don't. That's real obedience. I mean, imagine for a moment, you experience all of this. You see a man who you think is a man and Messiah, his face shining, his clothes white. These people, they're not apparitions, they're not phantoms. It's real Moses in glory, real Elijah in glory. People are resurrected. These are them. They see all of this. And then you come back down the mountain and chapter 14 says, and when they came, or verse 14 says, when they came to the crowd. So they come down the mountain right into a crowd. And imagine you're, you're, you've experienced this and all your other disciples are hey, like, hey, what were you guys doing up there with him? What happened? Was it good? Did he teach you anything? What did he say? Did he say anything about me? Did he say anything about me? 
And you're just like looking at each other, like holding it in. Imagine. I mean, it takes restraint. We see that they obeyed. They listened to him. I love it. But how does a person, maybe you're asking this question, how do I actually listen to Jesus and surrender to him? Do I, do I have to go up on a mountain too? Do I have to get in a dark room and just like sit there and, until God speaks to me? Do I have to come to church every week to hear God speak? Do I have to find a pastor or a prophet or somebody who's going to mediate God's presence to me? Here are three ways that we can tune our ears to Jesus. They're not exhaustive. Number one, these are all, they start with the word remember. Number one, remember that Jesus is alive. Remember that he's alive. It's so easy to turn him into a concept. It's so easy to just kind of push him out there like he's a great teacher, he's a mere human, sure, like full of this elevated wisdom, but still probably a human. And I think about him as dead or maybe not present in my life. But the reality of the gospel, a central piece of the gospel, is that at one point Jesus was dead. He was physically dead, no pulse for three days, in the grave for three days. But after three days, Jesus was raised from the dead by God, appeared to many people by many different proofs. The disciples all saw him, and the disciples all went to their deaths under incredible persecution and threat and suffering to maintain the fact that we saw him and he's really alive. Remember that Jesus is alive. He will never die again. But he's at the right hand of the Father who loves him, ruling over our creation in the details of our everyday lives, present to us. And because Jesus is alive, Jesus still communicates. Remember that he's alive and that he still communicates. Number two, remember that God our Father and God the Son sent to us at the moment of belief for us the Holy Spirit who comes and who dwells with us and in us At the moment that anyone in the room, at the moment when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is with you and the Holy Spirit dwells with you. And he fills you and his whole thing is to make much of Jesus. His whole thing is to point you and I to Jesus. To help us continually. He does all kinds of stuff in our lives. But like all of that, all of everything that the Holy Spirit, what he does is in service of helping us surrender fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ until the day we see him face to face, when there will be no struggle to do that. The Holy Spirit is given to us to help us surrender our will to the will of Jesus consistently. How do I hear the Holy Spirit? I remember that he's, or how do I listen to Jesus? I remember that Jesus is alive. I remember that he's given me the spirit within me who, makes, who will make much of Jesus. Here's the third one. Remember the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote your Bible. Remember the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote your Bible. Therefore, whoever wants to learn to hear the voice of Jesus becomes a lifelong learner from Scripture. However you can, however that works for you, whether it's reading or listening or in communities, however coming to church on Sundays or in service of that. The Holy Spirit would carry along people. He wrote the Scriptures through humans, but Scripture attests to the fact that the Holy Spirit wrote it through men. Listen to Peter, the one who was there at Jesus' transfiguration. He's writing about it way after the fact. He's leading a church. He's leading the apostles. 
This is in the first two centuries of the church. And this is what Peter writes. He says in 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Think about that for a second. Hey, I know you're thinking this is crazy. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know us. We're telling you the truth. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and that voice was born to him or came to him by the, look at these caps, majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard it audibly, this voice born from heaven, for we were with him, Jesus, on this holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word that's Shorthand for the gospel, more fully confirmed because after that point, Jesus would go to his death on the cross. He would raise from the dead. He would appear to the disciples and he would continue to empower them through the spirit in the days ahead. So they've got this gospel more fully confirmed. So he says, hey, to this gospel, you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote your Bible through men. The apostles, Paul said that the Bible is theonoustos, which means God-breathed. It's God-inspired. A line by John Piper that I built my, my life around is this. Uh, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. Taking in the story of God is thing. Taking in Scripture and learning the story. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project is famous for saying the, the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. Your Old Testament matters. Why? It leads to Jesus. Your New Testament matters. Why? It points to Jesus. And so church, stand on this. Learn from the scriptures. Build your life on the scriptures' truth. Meditate on the scriptures. Keep your eyes and open, your eyes and ears open as you listen to the scriptures and learn from the scriptures and hear the scriptures for Jesus the Messiah because he is there speaking to you through his spirit so that you can hear him And as you hear him, whoever finds Jesus finds eternal and also abundant life. And Here's where we'll close. I want to ask you, do you need to surrender your life to Jesus? Do you need to surrender yourself more fully to the lordship of Jesus? Maybe you've never done that. Like you've been kind of holding out, holding back. You're like, I don't know. I'm still feeling it out. That's okay. Take your time, and also the time is short. But if he's stirring within you, the point that he's stirring within you is that you would surrender yourself to him. And this is for the person who has not yet believed in him, and this is for the person among us who has walked with him for the most decades. Every single one of us needs a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. We need to continue to surrender ourselves to his will, to learn to to listen to him to tune our ears to him. We can trust the one who surrendered himself to death and suffered in our place in order to spare us from the wrath of God that our sin deserves. 
but he stood in our place. He lived for us. He died in our place and interceded for us. Yes, we have fallen short of Jesus' majesty, and he comes speaking to you and to I, saying, you don't have to fear. Only believe. Believe me. Take me at my word. Church, I want you to hear this so loud. The God of all creation sees you. The God of all creation knows you. The God of all creation loves you. You can trust the one who was raised from the grave to receive glory and who promises that you will have the same future, resurrection life. Jesus' suffering leads, on our behalf, leads us to see more clearly his majesty. How majestic is the love that leads someone to die for us, to sacrifice himself for us? And we're not promised that we'll merely behold his glory one day. We're promised that we'll share it. The scriptures teach that God will glorify us that we will receive our body, but new body, the kind that doesn't break down or grow old. Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine when we believe and meet God face to face. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen. Father, we, we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit about your son. You would help us to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would overcome the obstacles of our faith. You would overcome the obstacles of our intelligence. That you would overcome our reasons for not surrendering to you. And that you'd call us to yourself in fresh ways. You'd impress in our souls the reality of Jesus' majesty and the reality of the ways that we fall short and the reality of the gospel that comforts us and teaches us to confess our sin and to see and name our need for your grace. Lord, as we come to the table, honor us by giving us faith as we honor you by looking to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.